everyone, and welcome to the podcast, and happy almost end to 2020, arguably one of the most disruptive years in all of our lifetimes. I'm Karen Weaver, and I'm joined today by Scott Flanagan, former president of a Wisconsin D3 institution, a podcast host of this very production, and like me, a fan of college sports. Scott, I'm so glad to have you back at the end of a tumultuous year. Yeah, it's, it's always a great to, to have a conversation, uh, even in the midst of 2020. It's been something. So I thought what we could do is go through the Twitter feed from this year and revisit some of the news items and decisions that have conflated and confounded college sports in 2020. So let's start with the most asked question. We canceled March Madness back in March, but played football in September. What were we thinking? What, and tell us why you think D3 and the Ivy League seem to have more sense than the top Division I programs when it comes to athlete safety. Yeah, I, I think this is one area where there are a confluence of factors. I mean, in March, there was just so much that was unknown. And for as much as still is unknown about, about COVID-19, we know a lot more today than we did then. So, I mean, you know, Rudy Gobert tests positive and the whole NBA shuts down right, on, on March 11th. Right. Training camp opened about a week ago for the NBA. Over about 50 players tested positive, and they just quarantined the players, monitored their health, and they go. So, I mean, I think part of it was that in March, it was it was unknown and unknowable. And I suspect that that based on the environment at that time, there, there, there was really very little choice. I'm not sure that uh, we know as much as we think we do right now. Right, we're, but I, but I think we have we have confidence that we know more, and I think that confidence leads to um, participation. Incentives play a big part in this. Um, you know, higher ed leaders and, and especially big time athletics. I mean, finances matter, and you know, March Madness that's evenly distributed, right? That's D three schools, that's the whole NCAA setting. But college football is much more local benefit when you think about conferences and institutions. So honestly, there's greater pressure for those big time institutions to have a football season than there is to cancel March Madness. March Madness has a bigger impact on the collective whole, but college football at those schools that are relying on it is really central there. So I think they have every incentive to play. And actually, I think that that explains in some ways why Division Three or the Ivies um, uh, seem to act with greater safety in mind because honestly, the revenue stream isn't derived from um, having to participate. And so, you know, the motives just aren't, aren't um, uh, that financial motive isn't, isn't there as extensively. And I think it's hard to say, uh, you know, college athletics is a part of society. And I think it's difficult, I couldn't prove it, but I think it's difficult to say that the political and cultural environment didn't have an impact. I mean, you've got the president in September, in effect, calling out the Big Ten for not having college athletics. And everybody will deny that that has a big impact. Um, but I think it certainly is, is something that decision makers had to be aware of um, in September that, again, just wasn't the case in March. Right, right. Here's the other thing that I think played a factor, and it's not talked up as much, and it's ended up being a double-edged sword but so many of these Power 5 D1 programs are located in small to mid-sized towns. And the impact of not having a fall college football season on the economy of those small towns 
was uh, worried to be very significant and perhaps devastating to the local economy. So I'm sure that a lot of the local uh, chambers of commerce and things like that were, were coming back and saying, you know, whatever you could do here, we need some sort of revenues to come in. But then the other the double-edged sword was a lot of retirees have moved to college towns. And now there's starting to be this trend of seeing a, a, a latent impact of retirees getting COVID-19. And the assumption is they're coming from the college population. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, there's been some research done now that they can start to, to track some of the strains of this virus. And, and this is close to home. I mean, I'm in Wisconsin and there was some work done in La Crosse, which has UW-La Crosse and Viterbo University and, and a technical college. And there was research done that could scientifically show how the return of students to campus and the ways that those students interacted, because right, that's student teaching, that's healthcare assistance, it's part-time jobs. I mean, contributes to the to overall health of the of the community, or or sometimes to its detriment. Um, and the economic impact. I mean, I just recently saw a piece in the New York Times that used Wisconsin as an example. Um, it's thousands of jobs. I mean, when you think about Wisconsin, you think about Madison. There are a lot of places whose business model is based on seven or eight Saturdays in the fall. And the same thing's true in Green Bay uh, when you think about professional football. Right. Um, so absolutely, there's a, multipli a multiplier effect uh, that, that's involved there and some economic pressures that have been brought to bear. Yeah, and I'm really not sure we fully understood that when we were trying to bring football back in August. So at least that's a point of information now that we really can't control this idea of spreading to just keep it within the campus population. That's, that's just not realistic in, in small college towns, I think. Well, and I think oh, it's just, I think it's just uh, illustration of a broader point. Almost nothing can be isolated to the thing itself. So we'll, we'll talk about a bunch of the issues I suspect that have come up in 2020, and and you can try to isolate them, but they're all they all interact with other pieces of the ecosystem. You just can't isolate one piece. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the takeaways about about a lot of things beyond viruses for 2020. So another question that this podcast tried to address over the year was how presidents have had to make such awful, difficult decisions, moving to remote learning and canceling entire seasons for thousands of athletes. What do you think they and we and you have learned about having to make those, those kinds of choices on our campuses? What do you think has been learned? Well, I think it's in, all in the process of being learned. Uh, my observation is that that uh, I think we've learned to, to make decisions much more quickly and be comfortable modifying those decisions as circumstances change and just learning forward. And I think um, I'm not gonna be one of those that says, oh, here's the bright side. Not, the calamity that's, that is happening to hundreds of thousands of people directly through loss of life and economic devastation is not worth however this sentence could be finished. Um, if higher ed can take away a more flexible and responsive approach to making changes, that will be um, a, a tiny consolation that could come out of it. I think the other piece, Karen, is that, you know, we've learned that I think we can sort of paper over or, or overlook underlying tensions only for so long. And these things stay, they, they might stay under the surface, but, um, you know, 
the fact that so many sports on D1 campuses are funded almost exclusively by football and men's basketball, to the extent to which there is any margin there. But if it is, it's through those two things and probably a, a subsidy. I mean, that was a disaster waiting to happen. It didn't take a pandemic for that. It could have been a much tighter, uh, it wouldn't need to be something of this stature. And then I think, you know, other tensions, social justice. I mean, we just, I just saw something from the University of Notre Dame about their women's basketball team deciding uh, that some of their student athletes will kneel and explaining what that's about. I see Utah State football saying we're not playing our last game in part because of some comments that they took their chancellor to make about the religious affiliation of one of their coaches. I mean, so, so that's not going away. I think folks think, oh, well, th this will just, I'm not sure that it's going away. And another topic that I don't think is going away is amateurism. Yeah. I mean, Jay Billis about a week ago referred to student athletes as being treated like essential workers. And Jeff Capel, the men's basketball coach at Pitt, you know, his quote is, I don't think anyone can say anymore that these young men are amateurs. That's out the window. They're not. They absolutely aren't. Well, try to explain that to them when they're not getting paid. Right, right. It's and really so I, I, I think these are issues that right now it'll be about safety and it'll be, and it should be. But these issues are coming to the surface and I don't think they're going back away. No, I don't think you put the, the cows out of the barn and, and you even have a coach of the stature of Mike Krzyzewski saying, what are we doing here? Should we even be playing at all now? Maybe we delay this for a couple of months to try to get a handle on this. And, and that's the fundamental question I keep asking is it seems like the NCAA is determined to run a postseason event. They're going to have a championship. It's a matter of how you all figure it out as to what teams are going to come. But we're going to host an event. So how many units your league gets in Division One is, is critical to how your conference sorts this out. And if you cross over to football, you can see exactly why the Big Ten had the struggle decision to make Ohio State leap over Indiana in football so that they could have a, a path to the, to the college football playoff for Ohio State because that's where the most revenues are. So we're seeing, as Jeff Capel said, more and more dependence on the revenues that these athletes develop to support salaries and debt service and all those kinds of things. Right. And that's been the case. It's just revealed now. I mean, it's just become, it just comes front and center right now when you say, I mean, it's, I was in a conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago and I said, now, wait a minute, you can play football, but you can't play volleyball. Right. <laughs> just do the math. Or, or ice hockey. I, they just shared with you that the University of Alaska Fairbanks has decided to cancel men's and women's basketball and men's ice hockey in Alaska because they don't feel it's safe. So there's a lot, there's a lot of questions here and a lot of ways to think about this. Um, you and I are sports fans, you of the Wisconsin Badgers and me of the many of the Big Ten schools I have worked at. We have ridden highs and lows, COVID outbreaks, cancellations, the Big Ten first postponing, then restarting the football season, as you mentioned, under great political pressure. Now that we've had that change in the Big Ten rules about the championship game, so that Ohio State could play against Northwestern. What's your thought on that decision? Do you think it was the right one for the conference? Actually, I, I do. And I think, um, so, right, I might have thought different if Wisconsin was second in the league, you know, and, and, and stood to benefit from it. But, I mean, realistically, the, um, 
the idea that there is going to be sort of perfect fairness or uniformity, first of all, it doesn't happen anyway. But secondly, it certainly doesn't happen in, in this current context. So all everybody's trying to do is optimize the best of a bad situation. I, I think that's realistic. If I look at it from a fairness standpoint, probably one of the reasons that I don't have even too much of a theoretical problem with it um, is that uh, if even if Ohio State had lost that game, I mean, if you say, forget it, you know what, you know, give them a loss. They had de facto played that division title game by narrowly defeating a terrific Indiana team right. a couple of weeks ago. If that right. game hadn't happened or if it had a different result, then then I might, um, you know, have a different opinion on it. But, you know, as it turns out, it looks like the only way Michigan could keep Ohio State out of the title game was by not playing. And uh, and I think it's sound that 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 didn't happen. I think Ohio State's the class of the league. They had a chance to to defeat the second best team in the conference. Clearly, that's Indiana. And now they'll get a chance to play for a conference title. I agree with you, but for a little bit of a different take on this, and I always go back to following the money. So the Big Ten, uh, somewhat different, but somewhat similar to conferences in general, has equal revenue sharing across its platforms. So whatever the, the college football playoff uh, uh, team makes comes back to the conference and is evenly distributed. And so if you're looking at it from a conference welfare perspective, the idea that uh, Ohio State has a better shot in their minds of winning, well, first off, drawing a television audience, and then secondly, having a chance to win potentially a national championship, the, the revenues are better simply for a rising tide lifts all boats. So I got to believe that has to be part of it. Well, I mean, right. We talked just a few minutes ago about incentives and it's the same incentive that draws Dabo Sweeney to comment on a league that's completely unrelated to his about the worthiness of Ohio State to play. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Karen. So shift gears a little bit. There are many, many, many critics of the NCAA and its governance systems in the country. Some have worked to present alternatives to how we could do college sports more equitably and consistent with the mission of higher education. Some, not all, most have just been just critics. Scott, having spent your career in Division Three, and I have spent some time in Division Three as well, what does D3 get right about college athletics? Let's talk about the things that they're doing well. Yeah, I think what D3 gets mostly right is the focus on the quality of the, of the experience for student athletes. I mean, the incentives that we talked about earlier, the financial incentives, it's, it's just different, right? There's nobody calling the, the uh, you know, the, the, the commissioner of the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference and saying you, you really should play football, right? There's no none of that kind of big time pressure. And I think that can lead to more principled decision making that's really just sort of grounded in the best interest of the student athletes. Now, the reason I said they mostly get it right is that some of those competitive pressures still trickle down, right? There's still that pressure to, to win and to compete and all the rest. But I think it's moderated so much by um, the, the real focus on how they can um, enhance the learning experience for student athletes. I mean, D3 athletics exists to bolster enrollment, to create a sense of community spirit, 
to represent the, the college and university well, and to enrich the educational experience of students. And that's, an, that's a much easier task. It's much simpler task. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's a much simpler task than the ones that, that folks at a, at a D1 are trying to pull off. Yeah, and it's, it's also a situation where um, the, the student athletes aren't thinking about what the next thing is for them um, uh, professionally other than in, in something outside of their sport. And the NCAA talks about that quite a bit, but uh, I think one of the things that might shift this is the names, images, and likenesses debate because uh, the uh, legislation has come out that says uh, D1, D2, D3 athletes all have an equal shot at making money. So to have a year taken away from you where you get exposure, you get records, or you get a part of a winning team, all the things that you know we celebrate in D3 are taken away from you that can enhance your brand. Maybe I'm being really cynical here. You can enhance your brand athletes might get a little bit more upset. We've seen a little bit of this in places where schools have made decisions, such as the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and the athletes immediately start a petition. They immediately start, hey, we want to play. What if we raise the money? What if we go uh, camp out and create a bubble in Upper Peninsula, Michigan? What if we do all these things because we're so desperate to play? And I just wonder if the dynamic isn't going to shift because of this, this change in names, images, and likenesses. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or am I just kind of talking off the top of the moon? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think of this in a, in a couple of different ways. One is, I'll be for, for student athletes who don't have the, the opportunity to participate, many of those are really vocal about losing that opportunity and, and their frustration with doing that. I wonder how many upon reflection, though, might conclude, you know what, um, did I need that? And, and this will be interesting to watch to see in terms of even youth sports and things. Did, I mean, there's a lot lost, but then over time, do you get used to life without it? Maybe, maybe not. It's all, it's all hypothetical. It's all hypothetical. I, I think the names, images, and likenesses actually is probably the NCAA's best, best chance to, to to square the circle of um, some compensation going to student athletes without violating amateurism. I mean, there's no way that they're going to call these folks employees. You've got workers comp, you've got, I mean, there's just, there, that's just not happening. But I think this allows them to basically complain about it, say, well, no, 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 it, it, that shouldn't be allowed. But you know what? If the states are going to make us do it, we have no choice. Right. Honestly, uh, what they're protesting might end up saving the association. It, it very well could, but I also think as, as most things do, they solve one problem and inadvertently they create another one. And I, I just wrote an article over the weekend that talked about these collaborative houses that are being developed to, to incubate uh, social media creativity so that uh, students between 16 and 22 can really ramp up their, their intensity on Instagram and other platforms. So I can see that happening very easily on a college campus where you know it's, that becomes the main focus. Well, it, it happens right now. I just yeah. read a piece recently about, but you know where it's happening? Cheerleaders. Yes, yes. It's, right? yep. Cheerleaders yep. are influencers. They have followers. Um, and and, and, and unlike, the, unlike the student athletes that they're cheering for, right? They don't have any prohibition on 
being able to uh, currently use their name, image, and likeness. And so, you know, I, how it plays out, I don't know. And it certainly will unleash a, another set of, of challenges. For sure, for sure. So we both know that the Knight Commission undertook a year-long analysis of Division I governance and last week proposed radical changes to the way football monies have been distributed to Division I members and to hold the Power Five responsible for not only the college football playoff revenues, but the expenses in managing the regular season as well. You and I both have discussed this offline. And in full disclosure, I served as a research consultant to the Knight Commission for this project in 2020. But this is how the Knight Commission describes it in a press release. The new governing entity would be funded by college football playoff revenues and manage all issues related to the sport of FBS football, including athlete education, health, safety, revenue distribution, litigation, eligibility, and enforcement. And for the ease of explanation, the commission is calling this new organization the College National College Football Association or the NCFA. As part of its reform proposal, the Knight Commission recommended principles to guide both the NCAA and the new NCFA. Those principles seek to maintain college sports as a public trust that prioritizes college athletes' health, ed education, health, safety, and success. Scott, let me play this video for you of commentary that uh, Commissioner of the SEC, Greg Sankey, provided to uh, a sports business journal about the Knight Commission's um, a report. I read the report, annotated it, highlighted it, and was disappointed at the end. Um, a lot of talk about, well, here's a new structure, but there's a lot that's not dealt with. Um, I think the NCAA is, is vitally important. It's imperfect, but it's an, an important national governing body. The suggestion that we just take football, create another governing body, doesn't pay attention to reality. So if, if the suggestion is go start something else, you then go down and say, but we want to keep basketball together. Uh, the, the report ignores the tension that exists with some of the problems identified, you know, the range and, and economic support for college athletics. Um, those create, that creates tensions. Um, the fact that we support football very well benefits a broad-based athletics program. There's not a recognition there. I thought the valuation of history was not fully developed. There are, are reasons beyond what's in that report that we have made decisions, and particularly on autonomy decision-making. I actually had one of my staff evaluate everything we've done. So 80% of what's happened through autonomy legislation among the five conferences to the benefit of student athletes, medical care, concussion protocols, uh, cost of attendance, the ability to interact with agents and learn what might be next for your career. Yet you have the Knight Commission identifying that as a problematic approach that's magnified tensions. I'm disappointed to see the Knight Commission fail to acknowledge the support of student athletes it's improved because of that autonomy conference legislative process. So Scott, what are your what are your thoughts first about the separation of D1 college football governance in the NCAA organization and secondly about making the rest of D1 built on the one school one vote model to create more balance and your thoughts on what Greg Sankey said. Start wherever you'd like. 
Yeah, I mean, we'll sort of take them in the order that you lay them out. I mean, I think a lot of the rec recommendations make a ton of sense, but honestly, I didn't get too deep in them because it's not going anywhere. And, and the reason I think is because the, the folks who benefit most from the current arrangement are the ones who would have to walk away from, from, from the power. I mean, so you've got um, institutions who are playing big time division one athletics, the NCAA is helping to subsidize some of those expenses right now. And you're saying, well, set that all aside. Why? They're able to conflate football and everything else. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's the best of both worlds, right? They can say, well, we're different because of football. And they say, well, take football out of the equation. Well, you can't do that. Well, so, I, and I don't, I don't blame them for that. That's every, right? Everybody's, I mean, Commissioner Sankey's representing the conference, the SEC, uh, I get that uh, completely, but I just don't see, uh, I don't see that happening. I mean, the, the NCAA just changed their uh, governing board, uh, what, a couple of years ago to add external voices. They added five external voices as a result of the Rice Commission, which means that now you have more external voices than Division Two and Division Three combined. The, the big time's not not walking away from from that power, I, and I so I, I and I can't say that I'm surprised then at at the comments from Commissioner Sankey. I, I would just observe a couple things. I think um, you know there are some perhaps some logical flaws. I mean, there's some all or nothing thinking going into that. I mean, we can't change anything unless we know every detail. Well, that's not true. That I mean, none of us operates that way. Right. Um, he articulates tensions and say they aren't reconciled in the new format. Well, they exist in the current one. So, and and I would I have to say that I I take with a, uh, sort of a, a grain of salt sort of this idea that you know eighty percent of the decisions we made benefit student athletes, healthcare and concussion protocols. Um, that shouldn't need to be explained by a governance structure. And this goes to incentives. If your incentive is on keeping student athletes healthy and on making sure they have a good learning experience, you shouldn't take an autonomy structure to be able to have a concussion protocol. Yeah. Yeah. That's just what you do to keep your student athletes well. You mentioned incentives, and I want to I build on that because I think that's a really important part of this. The incentives for what we do and college athletics are so different from division three to division one. And, and Gus, you mentioned Gus, is it Malzan? Is that how you pronounce his, his, his name? Gus, uh, the, the Auburn coach who was just fired, who is now gonna get a $21.45 million buyout. Now, how much money that could be used to spend on student athlete health, wellness, safety, education, cooperative experiences, internship experience is monumental. And so the incentives to pay people exorbitant monies is what the Knight Commission is trying to get at because the incentives are to invest in the things that are the wrong things for higher education. Yeah, and, and again, there are pressures all around. So that that's one. I mean, you, you I think, did some, some publishing this fall about what's happening in Iowa and in Minnesota. Right, I mean, in Iowa, they what? They cut four, false, four sports, maybe save a million dollars a year. Is that right. right? Right. Right. I mean, their football coach is on a ten-year, forty-two million-dollar contract, and by the way, they're being sued for twenty million dollars. I mean, so again, you could find. I mean, that 
that's available, but those incentives are so tough. But the other thing is that nobody, it, uh, very rarely are there incentives built in to, to save money or to have reserves. So, you know, every, you know, Bowen's law, right? Colleges will raise every dollar they can and they will spend every dollar they raise. And they get pressure from legislators. You don't want to be a, a, a college administrator of a public university. The state of Wisconsin system found this out years ago and have a reserve. Well, clearly you're just gouging students' families then. Right. The hope right. is when you when you draw down on that and you don't have any reserve and things go south, you've got nothing. So I think this is where the incentives, not just, I, I don't want to be too critical of the leaders, they're all dealing in the reality of the situation in which they've been placed. And sometimes the incentives have not supported uh, prudent management. And this pandemic has shown all of the cracks and fissures of how we've managed finances all the way through this. It's been, it's been a tough year, but hopefully coming out of it, we've at least taken what we've learned and, and we'll want to apply it. So thinking about the rest of higher education, we'd like to believe that the next year will be better. What is one prediction you might have for 2021 that we can look forward to happening as a response to the pandemic and the disruption? Well, I, I, I mean, the, I think the prediction's relatively easy and that is that at least I think for the 2021-22 academic year, we'll have seasons that are much more consistent. I mean, we'll be able to, student athletes will be able to practice and compete and we won't have a schedule literally changing every day. I mean, I just think to get back to those days will feel so good for everybody involved, fans, student athletes, coaches, administrators, everybody else. Um, but I mean, I, I want to take this point to amplify a point you made, I think, this summer, and that we, we have an opportunity to revisit priorities in college athletics. You made this point late this summer, um, as it was unclear about what, what this year would look like, whether it's social justice or, or revenue, non-revenue sports, the role of sports and life of campus. I mean, this is an opportunity. Uh, the normal that we're that is going to happen on the other side of this is not the same normal that we left. March 10th is not coming back. Right. Um, higher ed has lost 10% of its uh, employee base yes. in this pandemic. And athletics is not gonna be unscathed. So we can just say, well, how quickly can we get back to the old normal? Uh, or we can use this as you pointed out, as a moment to say, there certainly are constraints, but what would we like the new normal to be? And, and, and my, my hope is that that question uh, continues to be asked, even as we try to manage our way through um, the situation that none of us could really have fathomed. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. And I really hope that um, we don't keep making the same mistake over and over again of giving our athletes lip service as to what's important to them. Social, racial equity is really important to this generation of students that are coming up. And, and forming committees is nice, but that isn't gonna cut it anymore. And athletes are prepared to take action that um, can have a, a, a tumbleweed kind of consequence going down the line to other decisions and other situations. And why do they do it? They do it because they feel like we're not listening. So I think our challenge is, as leaders is to listen more and talk less so that our athletes feel like they are truly, 
maybe not equal partners, but co co collaborators in their athletic experience. I think that makes um, makes everybody feel like it's worth it. The time, the money, the effort that I'm investing, it's worth it because I'm gaining something from it. I think that's a I think that's a, a great observation, and again, something that hopefully we can we can uh, take and apply in 21 uh, and forward to build an even better. Uh, you know, I, intercollegiate athletics in America has so many tremendous features uh, and to build on those, to correct the flaws, um, we, you know, we have a, a chance to do that anew. We do. Well, thanks to the loyal listeners that have found this podcast way back in January, 2020 and have continued to listen. What started as a project about college athletics morphed into a diary of how this $4 billion a year industry has reacted to a once in a century pandemic. We are already working on new projects for 2021. And if you haven't already, check out my columns for Forbes.com that expand on these issues in more detail. And Scott, thanks so much for being my guest host, my co-host, my commentator, and my friend throughout this whole year. I've really enjoyed having you on the, on the ride with me. This is uh, one of the few highlights of 2020, Karen, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it.